Lord Jesus, we're going to claim your presence right now. We cannot see you with our eyes. We cannot touch you with our hands. But you made a promise to us 2,000 years ago. You said, I'll never leave you. You said, I'll never forsake you. You said, lo, I'm with you even to the end of the age. So you're here right now. You're here right in the middle of everything that we're going through. Individually and collectively, you are here, the, the creator and the redeemer of all. Also the living word. And so in this moment, we now pause, we open up the Bible, which you tell us is your written word. And we invite your Holy Spirit now to come and have his way in our minds and hearts and lives that we might hear from you. Would you speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. Well, uh, it was closing time at the boat pond and the kid on the loudspeaker said, uh, Boat number nine, it's time to bring the boat in. And his buddy at the rental booth looked at him and he said, we only have eight boats. And there was this pause and the, boat, the voice came through the loudspeaker again. Boat number six, are you experiencing difficulties? <laughs> I, t- I-, I promised I'd come back with some new material. I've been on sabbatical for three months. I got that one from a British sailor and it totally cracked him up. So I thought I would try it on you. But you know, uh, sometimes it feels like our lives are upside down. Still floating, yeah, but upside down. Life is a struggle. Faith is a struggle. And by the way, as I said earlier, this is Lent. Lent is a period of time where the followers of Jesus had said, can we be intentional about struggle? For, for 40 days, you know what I mean? To struggle with our desires, to struggle with our habits, to struggle with the dark and broken places in our lives, in our world. What we really want is more, less of ourselves so that we can have more of Jesus, the, the, the life of our resurrected savior, Jesus Christ. This is all preparation for more life in Christ. So I just thought, since that's true, uh, why don't we take a text for Lent and really dive into it deeply for six weeks. And I've chosen a text about struggle, famous wrestler. It's about a man who thinks he's struggling with life only to find out that actually he's struggling with the one who's trying to give him life. There's a paradox there and an invitation. So let's read the text together. Would you pull out your Bible and turn to Genesis 32, 22 through 32. If you've got the Black Pew Bible, you can turn to page 26 or navigate over Genesis 32, 22 to 32. Always keep the text open uh, when we're listening for the Lord's voice. And if you're able, would you stand? Let's read God's word aloud together as an act of worship. When we're done reading, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. So that if you believe it, you can say, thanks be to God. Listen carefully, you're reading God's holy word. The same night he got up and took his two wives, his two maids, and his 11 children and crossed the ford of Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and likewise everything that he had. Jacob was left alone and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he struck him on the hip socket And Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go for the day is breaking. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So he said to him, what is your name? 
And he said, Jacob. Then the man said, you shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with humans and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life is preserved. The sun rose upon him as he passed Peniel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the Israelites do not eat the thigh muscle that is on the hip socket, because he struck Jacob on the hip socket at the thigh muscle. This is the word of the Lord. Heaven and earth will pass away, but what we just read never will. Please be seated. Well, if you were here last week, uh, we talked about contested spaces in our lives. And this is certainly a contested space, wouldn't you say? And there's a lesson here. Jacob teaches us that what looks like the big struggle of life may actually be a struggle with the Lord who gives life. What looks like the struggle of life might actually be a struggle with the one who's trying to give you life. This is the struggle of faith. You and I, we struggle in all kinds of darkness, dark places. And today you may be struggling with fear or loss or hurt. But this text suggests yeah, you know, there's more in that struggle than you think. You might actually be wrestling with someone else, someone who has the capacity to bless you and to show you right here in this place, the face of God. Now, I think this story is an iconic story. If for no other reason than that this is the place where Israel gets its name, a whole nation gets its name in this moment, Israel. It means strive with God. And so I think in this moment, this iconic moment, Israel probably said, yeah, we see a little microcosm of our whole history here. We see here our faith, a striving with God. It, it, it's a picture of Israel striving with its persecutors, a picture of Israel striving with itself, picture of Israel ultimately, yes, striving even with God. They would be wounded, but they would be blessed. Anytime there was meat on the table, the family would remember, no, we don't, we don't eat that part because of this moment. This is Israel's faith. So what I want to do is do a deep dive into this iconic moment, this one story uh, for six weeks. I know this is really different for UPC, but how about for six weeks, we look at nothing but one passage of scripture together. They may throw me out on this one. At UPC, really? Think of it. What I want to do is really marinate in the text. I have a friend here who said to me several years ago, he said, George, I would love it if you would just preach the same sermon for four weeks in a row. Because I mean, it takes me a whole week just to figure out what in the world you're talking about. You know, it really was, I, you know, I want more time to kind of knead it into the fiber of my life. And I can't do that in the space of one week. So same message four weeks in, in a row. And I'm like, no, no, you know, I think for me, like I get the meaning of the text and I want to move on to some other text. And he'd say to me, yeah, George, you may be done with the text, but the text might not be done with you, brother. You know what I'm saying? And so uh, what would it be like for us to slow down a little bit and really sit with the text and, and actually sit under the text, allow it to have its proper place of authority in our life? 
and actually see ourselves sitting inside of the text so that the text itself can challenge the stories we tell ourselves and we think we're living in with a bigger, more beautiful story. By the way, this is more of a Hebrew reading uh, of the text, to, to sit in the story, to adopt the narrative as our own. It's more of an African-American a way of embracing the text, right? Coming out of traditions of orality and, and adopting the metaphors of, of exodus and exile and applying those metaphors to our lives, right? So that's what I want to invite us to do. Really, the, the, that medieval practice you may have heard of called Lectio Divina. Lectio Divina means divine or spiritual reading. I want to do a collective Lectio Divina with you for six weeks, just, just reading the same text again and again and again and asking the Lord to speak in deeper and deeper ways into our lives and church family. So let's sit at the fort of Jabbok and consider the struggles of our lives. Now, to begin, let's begin with a question today that Jacob must be asking, who is this stranger? Who is this stranger, right? Why am I suddenly wrestling? I mean, there's a blank here in the narrative. We don't know, right? All of a sudden, he's, for hours, laid out in mud and sweat with some stranger, and he cries out, tell me your name, and there's no answer. If anything, just more questions. All he is told is all that we are told, apparently, in verse 24. Let's read it again. Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. A man. Who is this man? Well, who would Jacob be expecting? Who would the reader of Genesis be expecting? So let's back up. Let's put this text in context. Anytime you're struggling with the scriptures, you want to look at the context. The book of Genesis. I'm hoping we'll see the book of Genesis through the lens of this little story in new ways. But if we back up and say, what is Genesis about? Here's what I think Genesis is about. It's a struggle for a blessing. The whole book is a struggle for a blessing. I say that because, check me on this, it begins with a blessing. God blesses the first two human beings. And it ends with a blessing. Jacob now, old and infirmed, latter years of his life, lays his hands on his 11 sons and blesses them. That's the beginning and the end of Genesis. And in between, there's a whole lot of bearing and begetting. Right? And by the way, in the Bible, women bear children and men beget children. And if you read the story of Genesis, you, you're confronted by all these genealogies. It's like they're obsessed about a coming child. In fact, it, it, Genesis hangs on 10 instances of a, of a refrain, same words, these are the descendants of, these are the descendants of, and then you get these genealogies, lists of bearing and begetting. That's Genesis. And the reason is Genesis, the narrator, is cleverly trying to create an expectation in the reader's mind from the very beginning, and they're all looking for a child. They're all looking for a child who will bring the promise of God's rule back to creation. So in Genesis 3.15, we see this promise. If you want to look, turn to Genesis 3.15. This is the Garden of Eden scene. Right after the rebellion of humankind, now the Lord offers words of cursing on the serpent. And the Lord says, in the hearing of Adam and Eve, I will put enmity between you, speaking to the serpent, the presence of evil in the garden, and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. A son of Eve will crush the head of the son of a serpent. This is what this is saying. 
In other words, a coming child will definitively break the power of evil and bring the blessing of God's rule back to creation. So they're looking for a child. Who is this child? Right? The first child's born. Is this the, is this the one? Is, is Cain? Is it Cain? No, uh, apparently not Cain. He seems more like the offspring of the serpent. Kills his brother for a blessing. Well, Seth. Maybe it's Seth. Well, we follow Seth's lineage. So it goes until God blesses Abraham and then Abraham blesses his son Isaac and then Isaac blesses his son Esau, right? No. Trick question. Jacob steals the blessing from Esau. It should have been Esau's, but Jacob struggles with his brother in the womb. Jacob lies to his father. He cons his brother. And so uh, he gets to the place where Esau makes a promise, a grim, dark promise to his brother. He says in Genesis 27, 41, I will kill my brother Jacob. Oh, now Esau is going to be like Cain and try to kill this child of the promise. Esau, the hunter, now waits for his father to die. Jacob, hearing this, uh, skips town. He uh, flees for refuge with his uncle. And now when we come to Genesis 32, let's pick it up here. It's 20 years later, this night, Jacob wants to come home. He wants to cross the Jabbok River back to this land of promise. He's left his uncle and he sends messages ahead to Esau. I'm coming home. And what he hopes to hear is, all is forgiven, my beloved Jacob. Please come home in peace. But what he actually hears from these messengers, messengers is this, Genesis 32, 6. Esau is coming to meet you and 400 men are with him. Ooh. These are um, fighting men. This is an army. And so Jacob now, as the sun goes down at the ford of Jabbok, is expecting a confrontation. He's expecting the struggle of his life. He's expecting the struggle that will probably end his life. So this is where the story ends. And then a man begins to wrestle with him. <laughs> Jacob was left alone and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. That's all we're told. Who is this stranger? He's got to know. Hour by hour, move by move, all night long, Jacob is trying to work it out. Is this a nightmare? Am I struggling with my own fear? Is this a human? Am I struggling with one of my brothers, 400 men, or, or with my brother himself? Is this Esau? Or is this a spirit? Is this the spirit of the serpent? Is, is this the angel of death itself? We don't know. He doesn't know. And there's nothing that his sense, senses will tell him. I mean, this looks like a man. He sounds like a man. He smells like a man. He wrestles like a man. And yet here's the remarkable thing. Somewhere in the night... Jacob begins to think differently. He gets a notion. He begins to know differently. Bless me, he cries, Jacob. Bless me. And when he gets the blessing, Peniel, he says. He names the place. Peniel means the face of God. Peniel, face of God, presence of God. And he explains, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life is preserved. Who is this stranger in the struggle? Jacob, and Jacob alone is the one who tells the reader, this is God. How does he know that? Faith. This is the struggle of faith. C.S. Lewis wrote an essay about faith. 
It's called on obstinacy in belief. Obstinacy. Obstinacy. It means it doesn't go away. And in this essay, he talks about the faith of a scientist. And, and her faith functions differently depending on whether she's in the laboratory conducting experiments or whether she's at home in her marriage. In the laboratory, the scientists will run tests to try to provoke evidence, draw conclusions on the basis of evidence. But at home, the same person with the same faith lets it function differently. It would be weird to go home with a scalpel and a Bunsen burner for your spouse. I mean, you might be tempted some days, but this is not like recommended. No, and she knows that and she comes home. She wants to, to address her doubts perhaps about this person what she does is she thinks about the person themselves, their, their character, the nature of the person, and the promise that they have made. Will they keep that promise? So Lewis says, this is the way faith in God works, more this way, the scientist at home. He writes in his essay on obstinacy and belief, to believe that God, at least this God, exists, is to believe that you as a person now stand in the presence of God as a person. What would a moment before have been variations in opinion now become variations in your personal attitude to a person. You're no longer faced with an argument which demands assent, but with a person who demands your confidence. See that word confidence, that is the word for faith. The, the biblical words for faith in Hebrew and in Greek mean nothing more and nothing less than trust or confidence. It's, it's, we use it differently than we use it. Trust or confidence in a person. It's not informational. It's relational. It's I, thou, as Martin Buber said. Trust. To have faith is not simply to claim that God exists, but that this God exists. To know this God is to have confidence in this God. It's not so much a, a what or a why or a how, but it's a who. It's to know that this is a God who made a promise and a God who will keep a promise. So now this is the faith that Christianity requires of us. But, but C.S. Lewis argues there's really nothing unusual about this kind of faith. We ask it of one another all the time. He continues in this essay. He says, there are times when we can do all that a fellow creature needs if only he will trust us. We're asking them to trust us in the teeth. I love that Britishism. In the teeth, meaning in spite of their senses, their imagination, their intelligence. Even when it doesn't make sense. So he gives us some examples of this. He says, it's like getting a dog out of a trap. You have to push their paw further in in order to take it out. Doesn't make sense at first. Or taking a thorn from a child's finger. You have to hurt them more in order to give them lasting relief. Or teaching a child to swim. You, you toss them in or you hold them in the water over the deep. Or rescuing a climber, which may require lifting them up higher to a ledge that's even uh, higher and more exposed. This essay by Lewis, it helps us understand what's happening here in the story. Jacob is coming to faith. This is what I think. He's coming to faith. We get to see it happening right here. Now, there's kind of a before after to this coming to faith. 20 years earlier, 
when Jacob was young and burning bridges, as soon as he climbed them, the Lord had caught Jacob's attention. Do you remember the story, Jacob's ladder, that story? He's in a place he would name Bethel. Bethel, Bethel means the house of God. He has this dream and this ladder to heaven and he wakes up and here's what Jacob said. Listen to his words, especially the second part. He says, surely the Lord is in this place and I did not know it. See, God like speaks to him, not as a man, but just like, like the word of the Lord comes to him directly in a dream. And even still he missed it. I didn't even, he was in this place and I didn't know it. Then he missed it. And he seems to say to himself, never again. So that now when he comes 20 years later in this night, there's no evidence that the Lord is present. He's not speaking. There's no like divine evidence or angels or nothing visible. It's just a man, but he makes the decision. He's claiming the Lord's presence, not to miss the opportunity to say, I believe he's here. Peniel, the face of God. I've seen the face of God. The Lord is in this place. He finally gets it. And if you ask what's the difference between before and after, the answer is faith, it's trust, it's confidence. Confidence in a person who made a promise. Did God make a promise to Jacob? Yes, he did. Actually, both Esau and Jacob made a promise. Uh, Esau and the Lord made a promise to Jacob. Remember what Esau had said? I will kill my brother. That's a promise. And Jacob now here recalls another promise. What the Lord had said to him in that dream at Bethel, hear the words. The Lord says, know that I'm with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. I will not let you go. This is about the tenacity of our Lord. I will not let you go until I have blessed you. I'm gonna wrestle with you even as you struggle in my hands. See that? Wow. And so now Jacob's just simply claiming that promise. See, this is the struggle. He's hanging between these two competing claims on his life, these two competing claims for his confidence, Esau and the Lord. Who am I really struggling with, he's wondering. Am I struggling with my fear? Am I struggling with my brother? Am I struggling with the one who wants to harm me? Or inside of that, am I struggling with the Lord? Am I struggling to trust that he is with me, that he will keep me, that he will bless me? Am I moved more by the face of my brother or the face of my savior? This is the struggle of faith for all of us. And Jacob is finally coming to faith. Jacob is finally able to say the Lord is in this place. See, faith is a struggle to trust the goodness of God even when we can't see it. And yes, faith is a struggle. And I think this iconic text shows us more questions than answers. But it's a struggle that gives us life. Would you trust, would you want to trust a God that you completely understood? Would you want to worship a God if you fully could understand what he's doing in your life? Even with a four-year-old child, we know they can't, under, we, say, we say just don't do that. We know sometimes they can't understand why. We just say just don't do that. But what we say is trust me. Trust mom. Trust dad. See, faith is a struggle to trust the goodness of God even when we can't see it. And by the way, it is a major theme of the book of Genesis. I'm calling it out because the whole book puts it front and center. Will Adam and Eve trust the Lord or themselves? Will Noah build a boat where there's no water? Will Sarah believe that a 90-year-old woman could bear a child? Will Abraham believe that a sacrificed son could somehow still beget as many children as the stars? 
Will Joseph believe that no prison can hold you when it is God working for good? See, the Bible says we walk by faith, not by sight. We have to do this. The Bible says without faith, it's impossible to please God. For whoever would approach him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. It's faith. It's a struggle. But it's a struggle that allows us to find God in all the other struggles. Faith is a struggle that transforms our struggle. Faith is a struggle because uh, now the Lord can lead us through the struggle. Faith is being able to say, wherever you are, the Lord is in this place. The Lord is in this place. So the Lord and giver of life is present in the struggles of your life. Friend, no matter how hard it is right now or how wonderful, he's here. Here's what I find when I sit with this story and under this story and find myself even in this story, the story begins to meddle with me. It starts to mess with me. It starts asking these personal questions of me. Questions like, George, what are you struggling with? George, what do you think you're struggling with? Your broken heart, your resume, your retirement account, your diagnosis, your anger, whatever it is. I want you to know there's a deeper struggle, George. The Lord is in this place. There's a great psychiatrist several years ago wrote up a true account of uh, six six-year-old African-American girls who integrated their school in 1961 in New Orleans. Brave girls. The National Guard was required just to get them safely to the door of the school. And as those six little girls walked up that sidewalk, went up those steps, on either side of them there were protesters protesting integration shouting horrible things at them, calling them names. One of those girls was named Tessie. And one morning she woke up and she'd taken all the yelling that she could take. And she told her grandmother, not feeling well today. I think I had better just stay home. And uh, she had a wise grandmother who immediately recognized the struggle that Tessie was in knew what she was wrestling with. And so the grandmother said this, apparently, to Tessie. She said, it's no picnic, child. I know that, Tessie. Lord Almighty, if I could just go with you and call all those people to my side and read to them from the Bible and remind them that he's up there, Jesus, watching over all of us. Lord, I pray for them, those poor, poor folks who are out there shouting their heads off at you, You're one of the Lord's people. He's put his hand on you. He's given a call to you, a call to service in his name. What a wonderful grandmother. And you know, Tessie just felt like maybe she could go to school that day after all. Because she learned, she learned that the Lord is in this place. And ultimately, it's a struggle of faith that saves us. Because if you follow the genealogies, follow them forward, 42 generations, as Matthew calls, counts them, I think there's actually more than that. What we learn is that in the fullness of time, there's a daughter of Eve named Mary. 
And she bears a son of promise, a blessed son, one who is bringing the blessing of God's rule back to creation. He's the son of God who strives with man and he's the son of man who strives with God and prevails. Jesus prevails. On the cross, the seed of the serpent does indeed strike his heel, but at the empty tomb, the seed of the woman strikes and crushes the head of the serpent. He prevails and he saves us. By the way, do you know what Jesus' name means, Jesus? It means he saves. He saves. And when he walked the dusty paths of Palestine himself, he said, very truly I tell you, anyone who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come under judgment but has passed from death to life. So if we take that promise seriously, here's what we can say. God stands before us right now in the person of Jesus Christ. Not as an idea, not as a philosophy, not as a religion, not as a stranger, but as a friend. The face of God. The person who made you and redeemed you. A person who has all power and authority to bless you for all of eternity. But there's one thing he needs from you. Just one thing. And that is your trust. Your confidence. Your faith. Brothers and sisters, would you give him that today? Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, oh, sometimes we're aware of what a gift it is to be born into this moment of history. Sometimes it feels like a tremendous burden. Um, yeah, our boats are floating, but they're upside down. And we're struggling. If we can be honest, and we should be honest in church, we're here to say we are all struggling. And so thank you for this incredible, surprising reminder that you're in the same struggle, that you're in the struggle, that you're here, that you're in this place with us. Thank you for being a God as full of chesed, steadfast loving kindness, and emet, truth, faithfulness. That you have made a promise to us in Jesus Christ that you will always keep. And so today, would you help us in our unbelief, would you help us look into your face to see your nail-scarred hands and be folded into your love that we might know you are one who will keep this great promise to us. We pray that you'll help us to embrace the feeling that grows up within us as you hold us in that way and that feeling of confidence, that feeling of trust, that feeling of faith. That we're safe with you. Lord, we also want to pray for anybody who has not ever said yes to you, who hasn't responded to that great invitation that Jesus gives us at the moment we believe in him, we have passed out from judgment, we passed out from death into life eternal. And we pray right now for anybody who's among us on the live stream or in the room who would like now the impulse of your Holy Spirit to say, you know what, I do want to say yes to Jesus. In fact, if, if we'll keep our heads bowed and eyes closed except for me. And I just ask you, if you want to say yes to Jesus, would you just take this moment and raise your hand? 
he knows your heart. He knows what you need and he loves you enough to give it to you. Raise your hand and say, yes, thank you. I see that hand. Yes, praise God. Yes, thank you. Today he moves you from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light and gives you eternal life. You become his daughter, his child. Lord, we give all that we know of ourselves to all that we know of you. We don't know of anywhere we can go to find the words of life or someone more trustworthy. We trust you more than we trust ourselves. So thank you for this good word. Thank you for your Holy Spirit. Empower us by that same spirit to take steps of trust from here on out, day by day. In Christ's name, for your glory. Amen.